When my first son died, I mourned. When my second son died, I raged. When my third son died, I went looking for answers. When my fourth son died, I entered a fugue state and lost two years, during which I earned my associate's degree online. When my fifth son died, I went looking for answers again. I rode the rails like an old-timey hobo. Then I bought a used Kia Sorento and drove aimlessly. Then I decided Kia wasn't really my brand, so I started riding Greyhound buses. I wasn't sure what exactly I was looking for, but there was nothing for me back at home. Just the boat and blissful shouts of neighbors enjoying their jet ski weekends and lakeside barbecues. My husband withdrew ever further, embracing the numbness of the yoga, getting so deep into the group meditation scene that one morning when I looked into his eyes, the man I married was gone. All that was left was the hollow in trees that he'd cut back on the essential oils next week, that he didn't need the granola, just helped to clear his head. So after long months of wandering, I find myself in Fever Ditch. The bus station here isn't much to look at, just a ticket counter and a couple rows of plastic chairs bolted to the floor. Empty except for a drowsy ticket agent, a woman in expensive shoes reading Men's Health, and three acolytes of the Golden Cormorant, standing still and straight in a neat row next to a sad, half-empty display of pamphlets advertising local attractions such as Vape Row and Hitler's Typewriter. Vaguely curious what the town has to offer, I peruse the brochures, waiting for something to catch my eye. Forgive me, uninitiate, the tallest of the acolytes says, cocking his head at me, bird-like. You are searching? Yes, I respond. He looks at me expectantly. My sons are dead. The acolyte nods as if he knew this already. Why, I ask. Why my sons and not others? The cormorant knows, the acolyte says. Will he tell me if I follow him, I ask. Good afternoon, is your husband at home? The shortest acolyte interjects, smiling vaguely over my shoulder. It is not for us to know, the first acolyte continues. It is only for us to obey and to keep clean and to avoid clams. Clams! The third acolyte echoes, bending his long neck to preen his lavender robes with his mouth. We really would like to speak with your husband, the second acolyte says, looking somewhere to the left of my face. I need answers, I say, frustrated. It is not for us to know, the first acolyte repeats implacably. Clams! The third adds again. I huff in frustration and turn to leave. Just before the door closes behind me, I can hear the second acolyte call, Please let Mr. McLavin know we came by. I spare them one last uneasy glance through the grimy bus station window. They stand in a row before it, watching me, each of their heads turned to the right at exactly the same angle. The third acolyte flaps his arms a little, and I can see his mouth move in the shape of the word clams one last time, before I round the corner, and they move out of sight. Listening to Towering Thought Skyscrapers of the Mind, Remembering Charleston v. Manhattan, a special KJZZ presentation. 
Someone with a particular, more personal insight into the great author is Foster T. Manhattan, his eldest son. When my father was composing his latest novel, which was basically all the time, he wasn't an easy man to live with. He'd be up at four in the morning on the dot every single day, his iron writing gauntlet attached to the stump of his right arm. He lost that hand in the First World War, the Great War, to one of the German attack bears, and it was something that always came up in his writing. Not another German villain, Dad. I'd say looking through his latest manuscript and he'd just throw another marble ashtray at me in response. So he was always up before sunrise. My sister and I were often woken by the industrial noise of the gears in his writing gauntlet and the whirring buzz of his artificial eyes he composed his latest masterwork. Father would only write in pencil. He loathed typewriters and computers, and even pens which he called dishonest. And he said that a pencil was the only true writing instrument. Unfortunately, if he pressed too hard, his writing gauntlet would snap them clean in two, which would cause him to fly into one of his notorious rages. The only thing that would calm him down was his loyal manservant Jameson singing a variety of old Irish folk songs. Foster's younger sister, Minerva Z. Manhattan, also has vivid memories of her father's writing habits. He was up at four in the morning, in bed by three in the morning, Sleep is for goddamn crustaceans, not for Charleston v. Manhattan. That was one of his many sayings. He would write until eight and then break for breakfast, which was always a large platter of various cheeses and luncheon meats. My father had very particular eating requirements and would have a spectacular tantrum if there wasn't enough meat in the house. Our late mother would worry about just how much meat father consumed, but he was a stubborn man and insisted that if he ever stopped eating meat, then the animals would forget their place and rise up and overthrow mankind. Of course, that later became the plot of his Civil War sci-fi epic of Meat and Men. It's that time of year again. That's right, the Husky Boys have returned to Fever Ditch. Crowds have gathered to see the shambling, empty carapaces go up and down Linden Street as the red dust light begins to fade and the dust storms begin to kick up. No one knows why the boys began their pilgrimage to Linden Street or from which depths they came, or whether the plumes of noxious oily gas periodically spewing like Old Faithful into the air from the center of their thoraxes will have any negative health effects due to the prolonged exposure. Preliminary studies suggest they just smell bad. The mayor's office has issued a statement warning citizens to maintain a distance of six feet from the Husky Boys, and that they take no responsibility for what happens if you stray under the purview of their terrible clicking legs. And now, a sports report, if you're into that kind of thing. Father ate meat endlessly, drank nothing but a combination of milk and whiskey, which he called Charleston juice, and smoked pack after pack of foul-smelling Middle Eastern cigarettes which he had imported at great expense. His publishers were forever complaining about all the meat stains and tobacco ash on his manuscript, but Father didn't care. He insisted that the more ash a cigarette produced, the better. <laughs> America is the best at everything, my boy, but when it comes to the art of smoking, we are fucking shit. <laughs> He'd have these coughing fits where he would go so purple, you'd have to be physically carried around the garden by Jameson for some fresh air. Unfortunately, life at home in the Manhattan household became increasingly strained as he grew older. I don't ever remember father being a young man. He seemed old when I was a child, and he was even older by the time I was an adult. 
There was talk that he might have been well over 100 years old, but it was difficult to say because he almost defied any kind of description. He looked like someone had covered a large wire mesh sculpture of a person in slices of ham and a wig, and then dressed it in a nautical sweater and blazer. Father was obsessed with all things nautical, despite having a hatred of the ocean that bordered on pathological, constantly telling us that Germans were beyond the sea, and that the waters were full of, in his words, horrifying gilled pieces of shit. Sometimes, when the moon is high and my spirits are low, I take the boat out to my island tool shed, and I put on my daddy's riding boots. Things definitely got more strained over the years. Father's obsessions really took over his entire life. The murder team books especially are full of whatever he was fixated on that month, especially a piece of the murder, which is full of material about toilets. Father loved toilets. He loved every single aspect of the entire toilet-using experience. There's no better feeling than unleashing an enormous turd mid-morning. It's one of the true pleasures of life, and don't let the goddamn commies in the White House tell you any different. Unfortunately, my father's desire to have that enormous bookshelf housing the original hardback copies of every single one of his dozens of novels that it should be erected above his beloved toilet was not the same flash of genius inspiration that led to things like Hobart's decision or the endeavors of Captain Bacon. We told him over and over it was a bad idea, but father wouldn't listen. I think if Jameson had still been with us, things might have been different as father truly valued Jameson's counsel, and was devastated when he passed away at a fire at an illegal rave in 1991. Father didn't really know what he was doing by then, didn't really understand that putting 410 hefty hardback volumes on a shelf above you wasn't wise. If they hadn't collapsed on him, who knows how many years he'd have left. He seemed to defy the natural course of nature, no matter how much meat he ate or cigarettes he smoked. Ironic, then, that it should ultimately be Manhattan's own novels that finished him, specifically a copy of Hobart in the Garden of Gethsemane, which cracked his ancient skull like a meat egg. This episode of Brian Weekly was written and performed by Kathy Hobart's Quandary Fisher, Aaron Hobart's Tome Swatland, Whitney Hobart's Narration Reynolds, Max Hobart's Tord Eddie, and Michael Hobart's Gas Arthur, who also does our music. Summer is fast approaching, young acolytes, and you may soon be tempted to go outside and experience the warmth, vibrance, and excitement of the season. Good brine listeners, however, resist this urge at all costs. Instead, spend the coming months in the security of your basement, reviewing videotapes, taking note of comings and goings, collecting your own feces in plastic bags, rating us on iTunes, and following us on Twitter, at Brian Weekly. Damn it! Pencil broke again, shattered by my writing gauntlet! Don't give me a fucking pen! Pens are dishonest! Write whatever you want with them, and they stay forever! An honest pencil, damn it!